Good morning, and welcome to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. I'm glad you've made the connection and are with us today. I'm Lori Fitz, your host, and the goal of our show is to explore a wide range of topics that challenge us to see ourselves, our community, and the world around us in ways that get us thinking, get us talking, get us wondering, get us challenging, get us connected, and perhaps inspired or challenged to do just a bit more because we made the connection. In the last few months, our Connections Radio Show has been exploring anti-racism and why it's important for white people to talk about it. Uh, We've talked about it is a white person's problem and white people need to lean into conversations and what does it mean to be open to make changes to make a difference? How do we challenge the status quo? It seems to be against the Midwestern style to rock the boat, but I'm encouraging us to rock the boat. And to do that, I believe that we've got to look at being comfortable with being uncomfortable, uh, addressing what is covert racism, what is Midwestern racism. How do we get some more self-awareness? How do we start looking at our blind spots? And how is it how is it something that no longer serves us and what do we replace that with with something more productive more connected more empowered how do we do something and and in before we do something how did we make that moment to listen a little more deeply with empathy for the inequities and for how how what we say can make people feel I believe in our inner core, we do not want to hurt people. It's the Midwestern way. We don't want to hurt. But our silence can be hurtful. Our agreement tacitly by not standing up to things that make us uncomfortable give credence to things that are wrong. And it's time that we stop some of those wrongs. So we're going to look again at anti-racism through the lens of the restaurant industry the history, what's happening now, what it could look like in the future. And I got great response from our last show with Toby Knightitz, who is a consultant and does podcasts. Of, and the podcasts are called Legends and Lies of Launching a Restaurant. Uh, you can find him at foodguy.com. He's had uh, two folks that I've asked to be on the show. Last week, we had the uh, privilege to have Mecca Boss be with us, who is a chef and a food writer. And this week, we have Chef Adam Randall, who is a chef and a restaurant owner, a husband and father, and um, a leader, a leader in leading the conversation in uh, looking at new ways of getting connected. So welcome to you both. Thank you for joining me today. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah. So I love to find out, and I know, Toby, you do too. You you often uh, ask this in your podcast, how you got started, uh, Adam. Mm-hmm. Why is it that you wanted to be a chef? Is there um, – you, you told a story about how you were influenced by your foster mom. But I'd love to learn a little bit more if there was something special about making the food that gave you that aha moment that you love food and you love making food. Um, you know, when, when you asked me that question, I thought about, you know, there's, I love all kinds of food, but, but the truth is I, um, I had a, a need to learn how to cook kind of out of, um, 
again, out of my, my, my history. Um, as a very small child, oh, five, six years old, my sister and I were, were left in an empty home. And um, my, my parents never came back. And so we, uh, we figured out how to make noodles and butter. Serious, just plain old spaghetti cooked in a pot and then mixed with noodles because we had seen um, our mom make that before. And I think that planted a seed that said I needed to know how to cook for myself um, so that I never um, had that feeling of, of hunger, like true hunger, not, you know, I haven't eaten all day, but I for several days, that sort of thing. But then I thought about other things, and, and some of the foster homes that I lived in before I was in the long-term foster home. I'll, I'll never forget, uh, there was a uh, two sisters, two African-American sisters, Mrs. Wiggins and her sister, and I can't for the life of me remember her name, but her sister was the cook in the house, <clears throat> and she was completely blind, um, couldn't see a thing, and she cooked by smell and by touch and and by the sound of food in the pot and one of the dishes that i i will remember as long as as i live is simple cream of potato soup um you know chunks of potato and celery and carrots and onions and um, a good amount of pepper in it and the cream and and that memory that thought of her kind of moving around the kitchen, um, feeling her way through, and me just watching what she was doing, and then the end result was this amazing potato soup that um, I don't, I can make potato soup, I don't know that I've ever reached the level of flavor <laughs> that she was able to reach. So my, my, guess I, is I there, my guess is there was a lot of love in that soup. I think that, you know, and we talk about that, and people... You know, people often talk about soul food, and and I think there's some stereotypes that are involved with soul food, sadly because of some of the the uh, rhetoric and some of the things that have been written. You know, that black folks only eat. You know, soul food is is fried chicken and watermelon, which is blah, ha ha ha. It's kind of a joke, but but sadly that those sorts of things have been written into our history. But in my mind, and when I spoke to elders um, who were cooks, soul food is 100% about putting the love of your family and the love and joy of cooking into what you make. And I believe that you can go to restaurants and tell the difference between someone who is just going through the motions and someone who truly puts a spirit into the food that they make. Being um, able to ta taste the love? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I will strive until the the day that I die to try and make some of the food from some of the people that, that I was influenced by at their level. You know, um, one of the best chefs that I know was my mother-in-law, um, Barbara Gardner. She could make everything. She, she knew how to make just about, in my mind was everything. And she never worked with recipes but she made the most amazing food. Um, she, she, she raised 13 kids. She worked as a cook for the University of Minnesota and at the State Fair for many, many years. And she just was an amazing lady. And one of my favorite times with her was 
going to the grocery store. Um, I was the one no one else wanted to, but, you know, Saturday afternoon was old school grocery store. It wasn't going to a grocery store. It was going to five uh. because of the specials that were happening or we bought meat, specific meat from this market or something from that market. And sadly, we don't have those kinds of markets as much anymore. Yeah. Um, but I would say that those were the folks that have influenced me to to want to know as much as I can about how to put your heart into food as opposed to just going through the motions of the training that you get. I'm with you. There, there is something magical about understanding food. <laughs> My, I'm a granddaughter of a grocer, you know, small uh, town grocer. And we would do the same and going down to the farmer's market. It wasn't just the farmer's market. There, there was a schooling taking on you know, with my grandfather helping me to understand and appreciate, you know, the beauty of food. Um, and, and what you do with it is, it, it, it's almost an honor to work with really good food. Absolutely. Uh, and, it is, yeah. And I love the idea that cooking was a way of creating an empowerment for yourself, Toby, that it 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 gave you it gave you the the security of knowing you you had the power to create for yourself and i think that's that's an important notion well he tells a story in the podcast about being uh, told by one of his foster parents that if you're going to eat more than bologna sandwiches and hamburgers the yeah. rest of your life pay attention to what we're doing in here and uh, he did you know he, he paid attention and and uh, captured that love of cooking uh that I actually I noticed in a project that we did together when I first met Adam in Stillwater many years ago, I was throwing these really weird recipes at him, and he was getting it. He yeah. was understanding it and and knew how knew what I was looking for. Well, I and was able to reproduce it and teach his staff to do it. I also um, know that you put a lot of love into your food, Adam, because one of my most favorite. Restaurants. Uh, when I first moved back to Minnesota, my family's originally from Minnesota, but I grew up uh, on the coasts. But I loved going to the IDS, going to the top, uh, the windows. Uh, win- was it windows on Minnesota? What was the name of it yep. again? Window- Win- windows on Minnesota. Oh my gosh! The Sunday brunch was. We, we felt like we had gone to heaven. <laughs> Not only were we at the top and could see all of the Twin Cities, we would cry later talking about how good the food was. And then to find out that that, that was your baby for many years. So of, I, I know most, you put a lot of love into your food. We tasted it. One of the most amazing experiences as a young chef was working in a kitchen, a, a kitchen that doesn't really exist these days anymore. Um, this kitchen had a bandsaw, so we were – we bought primal cuts of meat and we're cutting chops and steaks. And when we did salmon, uh, today if you order salmon, very few restaurants get whole salmons and they usually just get sides. But we got whole salmons and we made uh, stock from the heads and the bones. And um, one, of the, one of the truly amazing experiences was myself and my, my best friend, Mark Erpelding. Um, we had the task of Sunday brunch, the Sunday buffet. And so our Saturday was 100% dedicated to producing the food for Sunday brunch. 
And there was no guide. There was no template for it. It was do whatever you want, use whatever product is in the kitchen. Food cost is not a, not a, a worry. Can you imagine that, Toby? Don't worry about how much it costs. Yeah. Oh, you want to put whole sides of beef fillet out? Sure. Do six of them. No problem. Yeah, that's it. The good old days of Sunday brunch. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I can tell you as as a, a customer, um, our family, that was – that became part of our history of of treasured moments, going there for the holidays. It was – I mean it was the place that you wanted to go to celebrate something special. This was when we wanted our family together and I think that's – that's part of what restaurants really can do in the most beautiful way is that they're part of your story. You know, and and when you're in that restaurant and that story becomes a celebration of family, a celebration of loved ones, of falling in love, of celebrating, um, that's what makes that that's part of I think what pulls so many people into beloving their restaurant and and beloving the atmosphere and on all the magic. But there are challenges as well. Uh, to those uh, to to make it a fair playing field so that everyone feels welcome in those venues, I think is really important to talk about. Mm-hmm. And what we'll be talking about today um, about what what are the obstacles? And and Toby, you did such a beautiful job. Uh, Adam, well, Toby, you did a beautiful job in opening that up for conversation. And I yeah. just like to continue to go a little deeper as to. You know what challenges are faced in the hospitality industry that take away from that um, that celebration. Um, well, you know one of the, one of the main things is actually I'm going to ask you a question. How many black families did you see at those Sunday brunches? Sadly, um, not many. Um, and and I think yeah. Mecca made a well, good that, good co- good point about that yeah. last week when she. Um, would bring friends to fine restaurants, and they go, "Why are you bringing us here? We don't feel comfortable." You know, this is right. And when you're not seated in in places that you're seated in the back and not you know <laughs> front and center by the window, sure. you know, when there's a different type of service that's going on. Um, well, I, I, a, we, we yeah, had black a, families that would join us at the table. Oh, sure. But uh, you know, looking around, I mean, I think they felt the same way that there's not a whole lot of black families that are coming here. Well, and that's one I, of the most obvious points of racism in the restaurant business is that that uncomfortableness that uh, we've given to the black culture in mm-hmm. town. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not that we don't want them in those restaurants. We just didn't make Right. Everybody feel comfortable in this right. restaurant. You're about to say something, Adam. I I, I think oftentimes um, when when uh, folks of color go into those types of restaurants, it's not only the atmosphere, but quite often. And I think things have changed a little bit, but the the actual food that's being served is not food that's familiar, and it it oftentimes, although I can say. With pride, um, on the 50th floor, we, we made food with full flavor and full styles, but it was very much, very much catered to the majority. And there was very little, um, uh, certainly regional ethnic food, but it, it really we're talking about, you know, we would do some Italian, we might do something Asian, but in general, it was, it was really food that was very familiar to the majority. Um, and I think that's one of the issues with 
with a lot of restaurants is that they're not embracing or they weren't embracing all of the cultures and taking the opportunity to learn and develop and make make folks come in and know that there was going to be at least one or two items on a menu that was familiar to them, mm-hmm. um, but then was executed at a level that would make them want to come back to the restaurant. One of the things, when my family and I go out to dinner, um, we it, it is impossible to turn off your, your chef hat, your critique hat. Sure. Um, and I <laughs> often ask the question, especially when we're in a new restaurant, did you have anything that was remarkable? Certainly familiar, but was it remarkable? And remarkable means that you want to go back and have it again or try something else that might be remarkable. And if the answer is no, then for a restaurant, you kind of have a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very true. And with that, I'm going to need to take a break, but I also want us to be thinking about understanding some of the dynamics of the front of the house and the back of the house. Um, most folks don't really understand what happens in the back of the house. What's what's a sous chef? And you talked a little bit about that um, in in the podcast. And what's the dynamics of the kitchen as well as what's the dynamics uh, of the, the restaurant uh, for the customer? So I want to go into some of that, some of the power dynamics and what, what they look like. Um, so we'll be right back. We're going to just take a short break. Um, and be thinking about uh, marvelous. I love that. I've, I've been thinking about all the different restaurants. What's that one marvelous? Uh, what's that one marvelous dish that makes me want to keep coming back for more? And hopefully, this conversation will have a tidbit of marvelous for you to want to come back to as well. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show. I'm Lori Fitz, your host, and we are continuing our conversation on anti-racism through the lens of the restaurant industry. We're looking at culture, history, what's happening now, and what could it look like in the future. We have two wonderful guests, Toby Nidets, who you met last week. He uh, has the website foodguy.com. He's a consultant, and he does podcasts called Legends and Lies of Launching a Restaurant Opening. We also have Chef Adam Randall, who is a chef for uh, our Twin Cities and many beloved recipes that he has shared uh, that I have uh, had the chance to to celebrate. Uh, he is a chef and a restaurant owner, a husband and father. And we're having a conversation talking about the restaurant industry. Welcome. Glad you're both here. Thanks a lot. So we started to talk a little bit about sometimes uh, the food that we serve in restaurants, you know, doesn't always connect with uh, multicultural families. uh, And there may not be that moment of marvelous of connecting. We don't also know about the dynamics of the kitchen. You know, the back of the house could be very multicultural, but not necessarily in the leadership positions. Um. Adam, you're a chef. You're a leader. Uh, tell me about that. And tell me about your experiences in that. Um, I, um, I've been in, in the industry for over 30 years now. And it took me mm, 10 or 12 years 
get the opportunity to, to get to the management level. Um, I think part of it is, is just uh, there's um, often no trust. Um, stereotypes get in ways. Um, the way one thinks about a person who is African-American, um, I think, I think restaurants are okay with you being a line cook, um, but as soon as you get to the level of having to take on some responsibility, and it's not everywhere, but um, oftentimes there's there's a hesitation. Um, uh, will will things change once once the the man or the woman of color now has a set of keys? You know, can I trust that um, that my product will stay where it's at? Can I trust that they will? continue to do what they were doing all along when you considered me for that position. Um, again, my experience is a little bit different in that I'm biracial and I'm extremely fair-skinned. Um, most white people do not realize right off the bat that I am African-American, and most, if not all, African-Americans recognize it immediately. And so my experience has, has definitely been, um, once I got to the, the sous chef and exe- especially executive chef level, um, and got hired in a number of places, um, there was a delayed reaction because I, I remember specifically two places where it was, one place was about three months and one place was actually six months in, uh, before my direct supervisor or manager realized that I was a black man. And when that happened, uh, the dynamics of the relationship immediately changed because all of the preconceived notions of what it is to be or have a black person in charge, that all changed. My job didn't change. I didn't change anything that I was doing. As an executive chef, I was still doing my 65, 70-hour week. Um, But the the attitude and the perception changed. You know, um, I, I had one um, manager who literally said out loud um, across a kitchen, well, you know, Adam, you're not a real black man. And, you know, everyone kind of chuckled and laughed. And, and sadly, I have heard that um, more than one time in, in my experience. And I don't really know what that means. Um, I um just as African-American and just as black as everybody else, my experiences are a little bit different in that um, I've never been pulled over for driving while black because I'm not seen that way. But if my wife is in the car who is African-American and looks African-American, believe me, I've been pulled over in those instances. So, You had mentioned in the podcast that part of that also was, well, I don't see color. Like that's sort of a badge of honor that that exempts you from any bad behavior, right? Because yeah. you, you don't see color, yeah, well, it's, and, and it's absurd. It, yeah, that's equal to some of my best friends are black. The same, the same statement. And I loved how you you were in the podcast said it's what you said and then what I heard. Share with us, like when you hear that, what do you hear him saying when he when you need to defend? being a human being. Right. Um, Someone saying that they don't see color, um, the first thing is uh, it's complete nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. 
we all see color. It's it's sadly the way that the United States is. Sadly and and actually, if you embrace it, all that really means is that there are different cultures and communities, and you know we have skin tone and we have hair texture and. We have the way that we interact with each other are different based on our cultures. And the fact that you would try and say, well, I don't see color. I don't see those colors. You're saying that you're, you're almost negating who we are. And quite honestly, there's no way that you can be raised without seeing color. You've heard the stories. You've heard the jokes. You've interacted either directly or indirectly with people of color. And so you do have a notion of what that means. If you didn't have any notion, then you would not have made a statement that says, well, you're not a real black man. Because in your mind, you have an idea of what a real black man is. And with that, there that's where I think the racism comes in that you need to be able to call out. And it's if you don't see color and if you're not a real black man, are you really saying that it's an honor that we think you're one of us? Is that what you're – You know, it, 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 because you don't appear black, you appear like us white folks, then that's an honor somehow instead of recognizing that all cultures bring amazing pers- perspectives and ideas and, and flavors <laughs> – of life uh, and to you know have everything need to be vanilla it, it it cuts us off from opportunities and with vanilla you shared something about vanilla that I thought was fascinating uh, on the podcast um, oh the ice cream have... story the which yeah. one the ice cream story the story about ice cream about blacks not being allowed to have a certain kind of ice oh, cream uh, yeah the history of vanilla ice cream in the South and, and the fact that vanilla ice cream was considered um, certainly a luxury um, and not something that um, was, you know, black folks could eat uh, chocolate ice cream or, or strawberry, but they weren't really allowed to eat vanilla ice cream because it was, you know, considered part of the American dream and the, the American, the purity of, of America. But I think that all kind of wraps up together about this whole notion of uh, this created pers- – there is no such thing as white. <laughs> I, mean, I get frustrated with the nomenclature of what is white. I mean there's a part of me that doesn't even want to be considered – call me Irish-American. I mean <laughs> what is white? Right. There's a sort of dominance that gets placed on white um, and, and then not to see color seems to me to create – you know, a whole notion of vanilla for everyone that oh, isn't yeah. fair well, either. It, well, as a, as a white person right now, especially in the last couple of months, I've learned how to embrace my whiteness and mm-hmm. know that there are, uh, well, there's, ba- there's bad things about it and there's some good things about it too. But, you know, not, not accepting the fact that there is no white, I think, is, is, is erroneous. I don't think you should go th- down that street. Because if you do go down that street, you're not going to be able to uh, accept or realize when you're being too white. True. I mean I think we need to be held accountable to the white power structure that has created um, inequities. 
and that needs to be called out and and to dismiss ourselves and say, well, I'm not part of that. No, no, we're all complicit. Um, and so I, I totally agree with that. That there there needs you can't back away from what's been done wrong. And and we right. and especially, I think white people need to look at what are the ways of change. I'm only suggesting that we examine does white exist <laughs> as a way to to look at the power structure um, that that we've created these uh, these naming of things that I think needs deeper exploration. Uh, but that's not to say that um, we shouldn't be held accountable uh, as white people to make changes and, and be part of help. But to me, it comes down to power differentials. Um, and white has given a lot of power differential that I want to examine uh, in conversation. It, it's well, interesting. And, 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 oh. No, go ahead, Adam. No, go ahead, Adam. Uh, so, you know, one of the interesting things that you said, Lori, was, you know, um, someone saying to me that you're not a real black man and then sort of inferring that uh, you're you're more um, part of our quote unquote club. Yeah. Is is almost as insulting as yes. um, as, you know, being told that you're not a real black mm-hmm. man. Yeah. Um, being a person who is biracial, um, that is that is a struggle that anyone who is biracial, it doesn't matter what the races are, um, but but having black in you in this country, if you are what was it? What was it? I believe it was three fifths. Yeah. If you are fifth um, black, no, then you're considered yeah. a black person. Yeah. And being biracial, um, you. I had no choice. Growing up in the 60s and the 70s, I literally had to make a choice. I had to decide, are you going to be black or are you going to be white? And if you're going to be white, then you are going to be shunned 100% by the uh, African-American community um, because you're not embracing your blackness. Um, harder to, uh, to, be, um, to say, well, I'm white. Um, especially if you have a skin tone or a hair texture or physical traits that clearly make you um, different than the average white person. And so um, you have to make a decision and you have to embrace it because if you don't, you will, I would absolutely have gone crazy. You know, uh-huh. my heritage is African-American, but also there's a lot of Eastern European in me and there's Polish and there's, British and all of those things, there is no way in the world that I would be able to embrace that and look at my, um, and be in my community and say, I ah, no, I'm, I'm more European, um, than I am black. Uh-huh. And even though the percentage quote unquote is higher in my European, um, heritage, there is no way that I'm going to be able to embrace and be that. Now, have things changed? Some say that they have. Some say that their biracial children are able to to embrace both sides. Um, when I grew up, and my experience, that has not been the case. Uh, you are and have to decide what you're going to be. And that's a sad thing to have to live with um, over time. But you also, I also became comfortable in um, being the lightest, brightest black person that I know. And with that, my friend, I my my engineer is looking at me again with okay. I've gone way over. 
<laughs> this is such good conversation. I did not want to break it up. So we do need to go and and thank our sponsors with some commercials. But when I, when we come back, I want to start talking about what was what would it look like to have support for more black ownership of restaurants. Um, what's that process? What is it like to own a restaurant? And what sort of things do we need to keep in mind for having having the opportunities more clearly supported uh, for investing in black entrepreneurship? So we'll talk about that in our next segment. So stay with us. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show. I'm Laurie Fitz, your host, and we're continuing to explore anti-racism through the lens of the restaurant industry, looking at the culture, the history, what's happening now, what could it look like in the future? And we've got Toby Neiditz, who is a foodguy.com. That's not who he is, but that's his website. He does great <laughs> consulting. He does podcast Legend and Lies of Launching a Restaurant. Uh, and we have Chef Adam Randall, who is both a chef and a restaurant owner. And in this segment, I really want us to dig into what we, – we've had COVID-19 that has just like smashed into uh, the restaurant industry along with health disparities that have shown up um, in, unco- in just uh, heart-wrenching ways of how COVID-19 is particularly hitting um, the black and the brown community. Uh, it, it, in and that hits our restaurant industry. There are so many great African American and Latino and multicultural. We have we have more multicultural workers in the food and uh, hospitality industry than any other industry except for the federal government. So we're getting hit hard by health issues. We're also getting hit hard um, and looking very uh, and and taking the time to look more closely at. Um, social justice, racial justice, um, that's also been a problem in the hospitality industry. And part of that problem is how do we support uh, more ownership of restaurants, multicultural ownership? And there are lots of obstacles uh, for that as well as obstacles. Uh, what In your podcast – I'm shifting around here a lot. But in your podcast, you talked about an honest opportunity – What's an honest chance for an honest opportunity for leadership in the restaurant and hospitality industry and ownership? And I want to explore what would that look like? And I know you uh, consult on opening restaurants, so I'd love to have your perspective, Toby. But I also okay. want Adams what, – what, what, what do you know now that you would have liked to know? What are some aha moments? What would you what – what's the real support that's needed in both leadership – and in owning restaurants that perhaps through all the changes that were going on, we can start to make real changes to, to, to create a new way of supporting multicultural ownership and multicultural leadership? Um, it, it's a really good question. And um, I think, you know, the first thing that always will always comes to mind is the financing part of it. And that's certainly is, is a huge part of, of the process. And, and you know, um, not having generational wealth, so not being able to tap into what your family can offer is a big part. But I think, um, I think mentoring, I think um, education, I think when, I think for me, um, knowing more about the business aspect and the challenges that come along with um, literally just 
balancing the cost, the cost of goods, the cost of labor, being able to have someone who can walk you through the process um, without, you know, I don't have a business background. I have, I have a background in, in running kitchens and uh, I know how to, to run a good food cost, but there's more involved when you're talking about a restaurant than just the cost of the food. And I think mentoring, mentorships would really absolutely help. People who are business people who are in the industry, who are successful, being willing and able to reach out and, and help guide um, on a, maybe a weekly or a monthly basis to, to, to train and teach and um, embrace, um, I think would be, would be absolutely helpful. Um, I think that you cannot, though, discount uh, the financial side of it and the, the realization that opening a restaurant or maintaining a restaurant costs a lot of money. And um, if you don't do things correctly, uh, it can go south in a very, very fast way. And um, having passion is a beautiful thing. Um, you You have to surround yourself with, an entire group of people who have the same amount of passion for whatever responsibility they have in the business. Um, and if you get that, if you're blessed with people who are dedicated to pushing everything you can to make yourself successful, you'll have that. But having the people that are willing to see you as Business people as restaurateurs and not as black mm-hmm. business people or mm-hmm. black restaurateurs. It's, it's the same as that. What we're talking about is I'm not looking for a hand out. I'm looking for a hand up, and I'm looking for an, a level playing field. Um, and I think it's important to look at the level I, playing field in terms also of. The net, there's so much that gets done by networking in the restaurant industry. And opening the doors for those networking, I think, is, at, is equal to investing the financial resources. And when you say mentoring, I, I think that there is a way to be able to access the networking um, that that door may not be – has not been opened as widely. Well, and it's it's a door that's really closed for white people as well on, on many levels. That mentoring issue is extremely important for a, especially a new guy coming into his own operation. Without having that mentorship from somebody somewhere along the line, he's going to fail. Uh, he's not going to have the business sense like Adam was talking about to do it. And he's not going to know that he's got to have that passion that like he was also talking about to – to translate to everybody else to, to help him make uh, make it all happen. The financial thing is really a bunch of old white guys in banks who don't see black people as uh, optional, as, as viable candidates for loans. Uh, well, it's SBA gone way back will, to, will to redlining you. with making loans for property ownership. Sure. My, my, my engineer sure. I mean, has... My engineer yeah. has sent me two notes telling me I absolutely have to go to break because I went way over in the others. <laughs> so I am going okay, to fi- – after the second text he sent me, I will listen to him. I'll let us go to break. But I want you to save those thoughts because I'd like to um, have a few minutes before 
the show is over to share uh, some additional thoughts on this. So, But I do have to go to break. Thank you. <laughs> Stay with us. <laughs> Welcome back to Connections Radio Show, where we're talking about anti-racism through the lens of the restaurant industry. I've got Toby Neiditz, who is a consultant and does fabulous podcasts, and you can find him at foodguy.com. And we have Chef Adam Randall. I'm going to put you both on the spot because we have not enough time to have the conversation I want. So I hope you'll both come back and we'll spend a whole hour on um, what what do we need to have um, – done <laughs> what supports needed to get uh the opportunity for that opening door of mentoring and supporting more black ownership of restaurants and yes i understand the level playing field of just of needing to not look at it as a black restaurant but i also think that we need to appreciate that we have not had a level playing field and we need to figure that out well, uh, yeah, a, a magic wand would help. Yeah. It, it, would, it, would, it would solve all our problems. But the the, the black-white thing, especially when we get up to the upper levels of business, really, it, it kind of disappears a little bit. Oh, it's up to the director the, level. In, when in the corporate America, yeah. it, you get up to that glass yeah. ceiling of the director level, and then all of a sudden, somehow above that, it's VP not, and higher, it's not the quite the right fit. Well, what does fit mean? <laughs> What does fit mean? And it applies to women as well as multicultural, diverse backgrounds. It's like, what, what, what do we need to do to fit? And do we want to fit? Well, down here in the trenches, uh, in the restaurant business, where most restaurants fail, we have more fail. Our failure rate, failure rate is higher than our success rate almost. Uh, money, it becomes hard to get. Yeah. And generally, generational wealth, like you were talking about, Adam, is really what the best way for ownership to happen, but you also need to lean on a white guy to make it happen. Uh, some of the, some of the restaurants that are right now black owned in the city have some white guys behind them, you know, giving them the opportunity to do that. Uh, and it's, it's, and it's networking. Like you said, Laurie, it's, uh, you have to know somebody there to help you. Right. Uh, like my mom always told me, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And it's very important in the restaurant business these days. Adam, I want to give you the closing thoughts. Give us some closing thoughts, and then I hope you'll you'll join us again so that we can have another longer conversation about um, opportunities. Sure. Um, uh, it is about it is about having uh, those folks to me who have the resources being willing to, at the very least, have a conversation, try the person's food, look at their passion, you know, um, and give them the support. I've got four seconds <laughs> and be there, make a difference, do something. Yep. Thanks for have a conversation. Thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to our next conversation.